back. This is the OMN Alumni Podcast. I'm Stephen Sandberg. This is the podcast where we track down Orange Media Network alumni and force them to tell us just what they've been up to for the last couple of years. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But it, it's great to uh, catch up with our alumni, and I'm excited to talk to our guest this week. It's the former editor-in-chief of the Daily Barometer. It's Lauren Sluss. Lauren, how you doing? Hi, Stephen. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah. Thank you. It's uh, been a minute since we've had a chance to catch up, but mm-hmm. so I'm glad you're here. Uh, for the last year, you have been in uh, Port Angeles, Washington with AmeriCorps. How are things in Port Angeles today? Things in Port Angeles are great. It is sunny, which is kind of a new thing for us here. We've had a ton of rain for the past, I don't know, eight months. <laughs> we actually have sun. Yeah, <laughs> which is nice, but it's a beautiful spot. Like we're right next to the ocean, right next to the mountains. And I like it a lot. It's really pretty. Fantastic. Are you finding a lot of like outdoorsy kind of activities to do? Oh yeah. That's basically all there is to do out here. It's a pretty small town. So every single thing that we do is outdoors. So um, no electricity yet in the town. You, exactly. You're basically yeah, camping yeah. out. Yeah, we have candlelights everywhere, um, but. <laughs> a good 1800s <laughs> existence. About, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. No, what what are you uh, finding uh, some fun things to do in Port Angeles? What do you like? Oh to my do? gosh. It is probably the most beautiful place I will ever live. Um, there's, oh man, there's the beach. So there's lots of hikes to go out to do at the beach. Um, there's a giant mountain range. Like I can literally see it from my house. It's like a 20 minute drive from my house. Olympic National Park is right there. And so there's a ton of really cool hikes up there and snowshoeing and skiing, which I haven't done yet. I'm not a big skier, um, but that's really pretty. And then we have a giant glacier lake that's right next to us too called Lake Crescent. And that's a lot of fun. I have a couple friends who have kayaks. And so we've been kayaking and fishing and yeah, it's just so much stuff to do on the Olympic Peninsula. It's absolutely beautiful. Sounds like fun. Were you very outdoorsy before you got to Port Angeles or is that something you picked up since you've lived there? Been pretty outdoorsy. I grew up in Colorado. And so most people who grew up in Colorado grew up hiking. Um, so it's, it's a little different here because we're at sea level and the ocean is something I'm not used to. And so, um, that type of stuff is brand new. Like I remember the like first week I was here, one of my friends told me to go tide pooling and I was like, oh yeah, 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 cool. I had no idea what it was. I should have Googled it. (laughs) Um, and she sent me out to this location on the beach and I'm like walking around and I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And then I look around and I see people crouched down looking in the tide pools. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) That's what I'm supposed to do. (laughs) So you thought it was going to be something completely different. I had no idea. I just drove out, drove out there and showed up. And my friend who's also an AmeriCorps is from Minnesota. And we both went and neither of us know anything about the ocean. And we're just kind of like looking around trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. And then we figured (laughs) out you're supposed to look in the tide pools. And we've had a ton of cool little critters and ocean life, which is really cool. I see seals on a daily basis, which is a brand new thing for me and very exciting. (laughs) Nice. So what are the big differences between your outdoor activities there and what you did in Colorado? Because you said hiking already. What are some of the big differences you've had to adjust to living in Washington? Right. Well, probably this adjustment happens um, a little bit when I was at Oregon State, but the weather is just completely different. Um, I think that's been the biggest thing for me being outdoors. Um, It can rain like in an instant. You have no idea it's coming and all of a sudden it'll just start pouring rain, Um, which is why we have all the really cool nature and like giant forests out here. But that's something that took some getting used to was making sure I need to pack 
everything. Like it could be 60 degrees and sunny. And then all of a sudden you're soaking wet and you're freezing cold. So you just have to pack for like the gambit of it. Um, but besides that, I think I, I think I had a pretty good understanding of what I was getting myself into. Right on. And you are in Port Angeles as part of AmeriCorps. You are AmeriCorps mentor at a school there. Tell us how you got into that to begin with. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of a really roundabout way. So I'll, I'll try to explain it the best I can. Um, so this is my second year post-college and the job that I had for the duration of last year, um, from 2019 to 2020, right after college was a research fellowship. And it was with a program called American Voices Project. And it was funded, it was a research study funded through um, Stanford and Princeton University. And it was through their Center on Poverty and Inequality. And so I spent most of last year up until March of 2020, traveling around the country, interviewing people about their lives. Um, and as I'm sure we'll dig into, I used a lot of skills from Omen <laughs> in that <laughs> process. Um, but it was a very large qualitative study. And so... I had the opportunity to see how public policy impacted people um, on a daily basis. And then our, our focus shifted once COVID happened and we went completely remote. And so I was doing a lot of over the phone calls and we shifted our focus to see how people's lives were impacted because of COVID-19. And I was lucky enough the last three months of my project to actually be able to study some of the data that we had gathered And I was put um, in the education group and I spent three months analyzing how education had been impacted, um, primarily in younger kids, primarily in elementary to middle school kids, but also talking about high school and post-secondary. And I was floored. I was absolutely blown away by how so many factors outside of education contributed to students' ability to retain information and perform well in school. Um, I mean, it's pretty intuitive, but, you know, if you had a family who was already experienced some sort of financial burden or they had instability, they didn't have adequate access to a food supply or um, different sorts of mentors outside of their family units, those students did not do very well during COVID. And I quickly realized that that was kind of the thing that I wanted to tap into. Um, You know, I had some like pretty lofty aspirations after graduation of um, spending that year studying policy and then going straight into a master's of public policy. That was kind of my, my path. And then after three months studying education, I realized that I wanted to get more involved in that. And so very roundabout way, I found this program. Um, And AmeriCorps is a really cool program for people who are a year or two out of college. Um, For anyone who doesn't know, basically it's a year of service. Um, You're not really paid, (laughs) I should make that clear. Um, You're given a a living stipend um, and you do get an education award at the end, which you can put towards any student debt that you have or any education in the future. And so it was an opportunity for me to actually be involved in a school in a capacity that I never had before. And I think that our program this year was especially valuable because there was just so much instability. Um, For a good portion of our time, I was actually working at a daycare center because all the schools were closed. And so families who didn't have the option to um, stay home with their kids and help them with school, or they didn't have Wi-Fi or 
parents who were able to support that, um, both of them got sent to daycare. And so I showed up and it was my job to get 30 elementary school kids to do their homework. <laughs> and that is no easy feat. Yeah. It was like wrangling cats. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, but it was a lot of fun. And then I was also lucky enough to be able to actually go into the classroom for about the last six months or so. Um, and I was hanging out in a fourth grade class and a fifth grade class. And I was basically a teaching assistant, just kind of bouncing around from kid to kid. I was fortunate enough that the teachers that I worked with um, were amazing and they'd been teaching for a very long time. And um, they said over and over and over that this was the most hectic year that they'd ever experienced. Yeah, and so to be able to be a part of that and to assist um, in just whatever capacity I could was, was awesome. And now that school's over, it's a pretty fun summer. I'm running some sports camps, um, for kiddos. And I actually just got back from, um, track that I help coach for elementary school kids, which trying to get five-year-olds to run in a straight line is shockingly difficult <laughs> as you can imagine. But, oh, I, I know the feeling. My son oh, is yeah, five. I know you do. <laughs> he, there is no way I could get him to run in a straight no, line. So kudos to you. Lane. They don't. They what don't are lanes? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? I just want to run. And you're like, okay, go ahead. Kid. So yeah, that's how I, I, I came to it. So over the last year, you were doing all of this during COVID. Yes. And you were working with this school at a time when schools were closed and classes were remote. When you when you think about the, the studies you were doing beforehand and, and seeing those uh, those obstacles and those inequalities for students. Was did you find that that was magnified during COVID in terms of the the lack of resources for a lot of students? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think as unfortunate as this past year was for a lot of people, um, personally, it was very valuable for me to have like a year long case study in the things that I had been studying. Um, my degree is in political science, and so I kind of already had a background. And then my year with Stanford was just showed me here are all these statistics about people. Um, and I think the biggest takeaway is that I took from that year was the more minority identities that a person occupies, the more difficult their life in society is. So if someone is um, identifies as female or non-binary, if they are part of the LBGTQ community, if they are of a minority race, um, if they're low socioeconomic status, all of those things interact with different systems of oppression. You're interacting with sexism, homophobia, racism, all this stuff. And so I knew that conceptually, but then this year to actually see it play out where I saw kiddos whose families occupied a lot of those identities, identities, they were hit so, so, so hard by the pandemic. We had kiddos who, um, either both parents lost employment or they only had one parent in the picture and they lost employment. And it was just unrealistic for a lot of these kids to get the support that they needed in order to function in school. And it was really interesting to put all those statistics to actual names and faces of people that I really care about and have really strong connections with now. So um, very sad, of course, but invaluable for me to like kind of humanize the things that I had been studying. So as you were going through this then and working with these students, was there anything in particular or any resources that you saw that these schools were offering to students, things that maybe have been more helpful over the last year since we've been in the pandemic? Yeah, I think a focus on just kind of social emotional wellness for kiddos was 
So helpful. Um, you know, it was really, really important that students learned, obviously, but the times that I saw were most successful is when teachers or myself kind of took a deep breath and recognized that what, what is more important, that this second grader can, at the end of today, do his multiplication fact, or if he understands that he has a community of support and people that love him. And that is always important, but this year more than ever, just showing up and being present for students and telling them that it's, it's okay to be struggling. Like it is, it is okay if you as a kindergartner are so frustrated because you can't sit still during your Google Meet. It is okay. Like encouraging students to build those skills because those are really valuable skills and we don't want them to fall super behind this year, but also recognizing that they are dealing with so much change and kids oftentimes do not do well dealing with change. And so I think our schools did a really good job of just letting everyone know that they were there for them. And that's what I tried to do this year as well. It's so fascinating that you bring that up because I, I noticed that as well over the last year in a couple of areas. One, because my son is is five years old. He did kindergarten entirely remote over the last year. Oh gosh. And so when you, you know, as you saw, when you've got young kids that want to be social and they want to, to be in the classroom and be with their friends and, and you can't get them to run in a straight line, let alone sit in front of an iPad for several hours a day and seeing seeing the great teachers, because my son had a great kindergarten teacher, uh, but seeing great teachers lean into that and say kind of like what you were saying, which is, well, what's more important right now? How can we give them that support? And then what was also interesting is that I also saw that from a college level, working with students here at Oregon State, there were times when we as professional staff had to go, what's more important right now? Getting this article done or getting the support that, that folks need in this very, very trying time. And so the fact that, that you all are noticing that and, and taking steps to help your students that are in fourth and fifth grade and younger, that is really important. So, so kudos right. to you, Lauren, and your team, because that is vital Thanks. for everyone right now. Thank you. Yeah. And we all need that. I know we, I remember learning in high school about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like if we don't feel supported and feel safe, even as adults, we're not going to do well. And so like, as you said, every single level of person, regardless if you're five, if you're a college student, or if you're an adult, you need to know that you are safe and supported and people care about you in order to function. So yeah, I agree. And, with you. and so you went into this and you were working with these students. You said it was fourth and fifth grade, the class that you predominantly, were, you were mentioning, yeah. predominantly. Mm-hmm. Had, did you have any experience working with kids prior to this role? No, <laughs> <laughs> no. And it, it's kind of funny because, um, people who know me really well were shocked that I took this job because really, yeah. And I, I kind of was shocked too. It was kind of like a last minute kind of thing. And I think what a lot of people knew me for was I didn't really know how to interact with kids. <laughs> like I <had laughs> babysat before and like kids were cool, but most of the time I thought they were just like kind of sticky. And I was like, Oh, you spit a lot. I don't know. And so I had actually requested to be placed at the high school um, because I was like, okay, I know, I know what it is to be a high schooler. That wasn't too, too long ago. I can do that. They're still just as sticky though. They're still very sticky. Right. But (laughs) you can probably talk to them a little bit more. They're still sticky and they still smell bad. Trust me. Um, (laughs) But I showed up the first day and my supervisor was like, Hey, 
I know that kindergartners kind of scare you, but the high school doesn't need anyone right now. Would you be willing to go help out at a daycare? And I was like, okay. And I took like four deep breaths and I was like, you know what? I'm bigger than them. Like I would win in a fight. It's going to be okay. No, don't, don't fight the kindergartners. I never fought the kindergartners and honestly they would win because there's 20 of them and there's one of me. So they they up on you. Yeah. Yeah. They would have won and they're pretty smart. So they have (laughs) strategies. Um, and no, I was honestly just kind of thrown into it. Like we had a little bit of training at the beginning, which was hard to do because we were all remote. Um, but I was just kind of thrown in and I was lucky enough that the people I was working with had been doing this for a really long time. And so the, it was a very steep learning curve. So the first couple of weeks I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I couldn't remember how to do elementary school. We'd all done it, obviously all of us, but like thinking about how we learn things or how to teach kids what addition is. Like, it's actually pretty hard. You know, you have to use a lot of blocks and pictures and stuff. And so it was a very steep learning curve to remember, like, how to interact with kiddos that young. And then after, like, three weeks, I was like, okay, I think I got it. And now these kids are, like, some of my best friends. I know more kids than adults than I do in this town. And that's probably the first time I'm ever able to say that. And it's a little unsettling, but I just, (laughs) I know so many kids and they're awesome. They're all great. I love all of them. So was there, yeah. was there anything that surprised you about working with those kids when you went into this role? Kids are so weird. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I love them to death, but as anyone I think who works with kids would tell you, no two days are the same. Like you can show up and have absolutely no idea what anyone is going to say to you, you know? And I love it. They say exactly what they're thinking all of the time. And they have no, they, they don't care what people think of them. You know, they haven't learned that yet. Unfortunately, they haven't been socialized to really care what other people think of them. So we had so many kids show up in their PJs or with their uh, pants backwards. And I'd be like, Hey, do you know your pants are backwards? And they'll go, so they don't care, you know? (laughs) And I just, it was, it was fun. It was, it was just a reminder that some, some stuff that we care about as adults do not matter. Doesn't matter at all. You know, no, it doesn't phase them. No, not at all. It's a lot well, of fun. What was the most challenging part about working with those fourth and fifth graders? Yeah. Oh man. Um, it, it was, it was a combination of, um, I think I, I experienced this with my job, um, with Stanford as well. Um, you know, anytime you're in a situation where you're dealing with people around you who are struggling, um, can be really hard, obviously. Um, I think obviously I am lucky enough and privileged enough to have a pretty good support system. And my time during the pandemic was pretty steady. I did not lose employment. I was very, very lucky and grateful in that way. Um, but stepping into a space where you're seeing every single day, something happen. You know, a lot of our students, um, well, I should say Port Angeles is a relatively low income area. There's a reason that AmeriCorps is here to provide support. Um, And that comes with a lot of instability. And so I would just kind of see a lot of sad stuff happen. And a lot of kids who were dealing with situations that were unfathomable and I had no way to relate to. And day after day, that secondary trauma kind of builds up a lot. Um, And so I just kind of had to figure out what were the best ways to work through that. Um, You know, exercise, creative expression. 
that type of stuff. Um, so I say that that was one challenge that presented itself that I developed um, decent, I'd say coping mechanisms with that I'll take with me moving forward. And then another part was in a school, there's only so much that you can do. Um, and the reason I wanted to go into this line of work was I felt it was a lot more tangible change than my job prior was. On my job prior, I would interview a lot of people and hear a lot of um, issues and then just leave and I couldn't do anything. And in teaching, I feel like I can do something on a daily basis, but there's a limit to what you can do. And if you are working with a fourth grader who has been um, experiencing in in and out of homelessness for the entire year. If you have a fifth grader who has bounced back and forth between seven different foster homes in the past five years, there's only so much that you can do. And a lot of times it's really difficult. And I know that's the plight of a lot of teachers who care is understanding that you're just here to provide support in the way that you can. And some things you can't, there's not a lot that you can do to change some of the home lines of these kids. Um, so recognizing that I think was definitely, um, something that took me a bit of time, but I, I feel like I've kind of come full circle with acknowledging that there's stuff that I can control and stuff that I can't and the stuff that I can't, I still care. But at the end of the day, I unfortunately kind of have to let it go. Yeah. But, but also at the end of the day, it sounds like you and this program, they're making a difference in the lives of these students as well. Yes, definitely. If uh, folks out there want to get involved with AmeriCorps or provide any sort of support, how do they do that? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it, and there's a ton of different programs. And I would strongly recommend it for anyone who isn't entirely sure what they want to do with their next steps if they're graduating. Um, most of them need a bachelor's, so if you're graduating college. Um there's so many different programs all across the country. Mine was just one of the education programs. There's programs where you can do trail maintenance or you can work with Habitat for Humanity and build homes. Um, you can work in a mayoral office or with a governor or local government. There's or refugee camps. There's a couple of those too. So I would recommend hop on the AmeriCorps website. Um, since it is a federal program, the website is not the best, I will say. It's kind of <laughs> hard to navigate, but I actually just find my found my program on Indeed. They usually post a lot of those on some of those job search websites, um, but I think it's a really good opportunity to kind of move to a brand new place, step outside your comfort zone, but you'll still have a team with you. And I was not qualified to work in a school <laughs> and I ended up doing it. And I don't think I would have been able to, if it weren't for this position. So overall, did you enjoy it over the last year? I loved it. It was honestly life altering. Like my moving forward, my next steps into teaching would have not happened at all if this past year did not happen. So it was honestly kind of a, it was, it was a very pivotal moment for me. That's fantastic. We're going to put a link to the AmeriCorps website in the notes for the show. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll have more with Lawrence Lutz coming up right after this. And we're back. We're talking with Lawrence Lutz, former editor-in-chief of the Daily Barometer. And Lauren, I have a quick little story to tell you, which is, I think it was your freshman year. Uh, I, you were in the, in the bullpen at orange media network. And I, I asked you to, to come talk to me in my office really quick. And I just kind of said, you know, Hey, how are you doing? You know, how do you like working for the barometer? You were staff writer at the time. And uh, I said, Oh, so, and I, I tried to be casual about this, but I was like, Oh, so what are, what are your plans next year? Uh, and you're like, Oh, well, I'm thinking about transferring back uh, to a school closer to home. And, 
And it's like, oh, well, you know, best of luck to you. It's been great having you this year. And the moment you left the office, I'm like, ah, because I, I knew how strong of a writer you were. And I'm like, she's going to make a good editor someday. And so I wanted to kind of feel out like, this, is this what she wants to do? Or is it not really what she's interested in? And then it turns out you didn't transfer. You stayed at Oregon State. Mm-hmm. Well, so all my plans worked out because <laughs> you became an editor, first managing editor and then editor in chief and you did a yeah. terrific job. So that's a little peek behind the curtain, you know, just <laughs> want to make sure that what, what path you were on. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I, for like a month, I was convinced I was going to transfer to um, CU Boulder. And then I don't know what happened. Something just snapped with me. I was like, no, I have to stay in this. I like this school. Why am I transferring back? And I'm so glad that I did. I'm so glad I'm stayed with OMN. Yeah, that's so, funny. <laughs> so you were the editor-in-chief of the Daily Barometer. Uh, that experience, I know from talking to other editors, there's a lot. You know, you're, you're assigning stories and you're getting news coverage out. Uh, when you took over that role, and then from that time until you finished up the role, what was the biggest kind of takeaway from your time as editor-in-chief when you think oh. back on it now? Oh, my gosh. That was such a tumultuous year. I think that was the first year, although I was 19, that was the first year that I felt like a real adult, a real person. That was the first time when I was dealing with things that were bigger than myself. Um, my, up until that time, my studies were very interesting. I was on the rugby team and that was a lot of fun. Um, but this was the first time stepping into this role where on a daily basis, I was impacting people around me in a scale that I never had before. And it felt very, very real. And it was twofold. I was impacting my staff and the way that I chose to show up for our team, for the rest of the editors and for the reporters and photographers and everyone that mattered. And I remember, you know, um, my first couple of years, editor-in-chief Rachel, Riley Youngman before me, um, I, I remembered all their interactions with me very, very vividly as a staff writer. And so me stepping into the role as editor-in-chief, I remembered how important that relationship was. And then also the content that we were producing felt very real as well. You know, college media is real. I think oh, yeah. it's, it's so, so, so real. And it has the potential to really impact a community in ways that I didn't fully understand until you know, experiencing it. And it just, it taught me that there are things way more important than myself. And that was an experience that was invaluable. And I would not to be dramatic, but I would not be the person I am today. If I had not had my experience at Omen, it was absolutely a pivotal time in my life. Was there a moment or maybe a story that made it feel real? A moment that you realized this is, this is real? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this was in like January or February of my term, our staff published an article about, I'm sure you remember, um, a a student in student government who during an interview had said some very blatantly racist and sexist comments about some of the students that he had been working with. And we worked a very, very long time in that story. And I wrote myself and, um, Tiffany, who was my managing editor at the time, co-wrote a little editorial alongside of it. And I remember that was the most nervous I'd ever been for anything. 
ever <laughs> and in a good way. Like it, it was a moment where I remember we sent it off to press that Sunday night and I was like, Oh wow. Okay. We, we are publishing this and this is, this has a potential to shake up a lot of things on campus. And I remember it was kind of quiet the next day. And then that Tuesday, my phone was blown up. I had so many emails from different people, both very, very positive and very, very negative. And I had the VP of the school, Steve Clark, coming to talk to me every day. And um, <laughs> it was it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy during that time. But yeah, that, that was like the first time where I was like, wow, this, this story has the potential to impact our community. And not just OSU, but Corvallis and, you know, Seattle Times eventually picked it up and Associated Press. And I had a couple interviews with local NPR station. And it was probably the most, the, the biggest thing outside of myself that I had ever experienced. And what an impact that story had. I do remember that it was, it was that coverage, if my memory serves me right, and I'm getting up there in the years, so sometimes things get mixed <laughs> up. This was the 1800s, I believe. Uh, no, but I, I remember that coverage directly led to his removal. If I remember, yeah. it was a recall election, and yes. it was right after this coverage came out. And it was the biggest turnout in student government election ever, I think. And yeah, he was removed from office and subsequently actually arrested too for hate crimes. So it, it had kind of these different concentric circles of impact. So when the- you're in the middle of that tornado and you've got not just big and co- big and important coverage you're doing, but also coverage that is uh, seeing messages come into your inbox and people responding to it both positively and negatively. When you're a student in the middle of that, how do you cope with it? How do you make sure that you are staying okay amidst everything? Yeah. Um, Well, first and foremost, the biggest, honestly, the biggest thing that helped me through was my time on the rugby team. And I think every person who works a lot or has some stress in their life, hopefully has a, a coping mechanism. And for me, that was that it was, you know, two hours a day where I did not think a single thought about OMN. And that space would have not been available to me if it weren't for actually being on the team. Um, so finding that outlet was really helpful for me. And then also, I was very lucky that during that year, I had a really, really good support system. Um, you know, I had my boyfriend at the time was awesome. And my friends were amazing. And everyone, to some extent, understood what was going on and understood that it was, it was kind of a, a big deal. Um, and I was really fortunate that everyone was there to support me and, and all the staff members, the pro staff were amazing. I remember multiple conversations with Candace, Candace Baltz and with you, Steven as well. And everyone was there and was, everyone showed up to make their support known. And that was amazing. And you did a tremendous job. Your entire team did not just on that story, but the entire year. And it's also good to know that you had that outlet too, with rugby, especially rugby. So I feel like you can get a lot of aggression out with that too. So hit someone, you know, <laughs> like literally just go on the field and hit someone <laughs> like 10 hours a week. It was great. <laughs> How long have you played rugby for? Um, I started in high school. Yeah. I got cut from the volleyball team. And I was real embarrassed. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go play a sport where I don't need to wear a bow in my hair. And I just <laughs> went to rugby practice one day, had no idea how to play and picked it up. And it's 
great sport awesome sport right on right on uh I wanted to follow up a little bit to something you said earlier in the podcast, uh, when you graduated and you were working for that first year out of college, you said you used a lot of the skills that you picked up during your time as a journalist at OMN, because you were interviewing a lot of different people and gathering a lot of information. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how those skills you learned as a journalist translated to, uh, your professional life after OSU. Yeah. So just briefly, my position last year was a research fellow. And so my job was to knock on doors, um, kind of a pre-prescribed address list um, because it was a really large study and ask if they wanted to be interviewed. And the interviews were very, very in-depth. They were about three hours long. And we had an interview guide that was about 20 pages. And our very first task was to memorize the interview guide. And I remember sitting there being very intimidated. I had very severe imposter syndrome. Most of my coworkers had attended some sort of Ivy League and they were very scary. And I was like, go Beebs. <laughs> and I took a deep breath and I was like, Psh, I've done this. I've done this. I have done countless interviews in my life. Granted, none of them were three hours long, but I had been interviewing people since honestly, high school, I worked my high school paper. And then working at OMN, I, when I was a freshman, I was writing three stories a week. That was like over 12 interviews a week, you know? And so that was super helpful. And then also something that aided and assisted me is during my time at OMN, I learned how to probe and how to pick up on stuff that might not be their surface level. And that was very valuable for me Although we had this prescribed interview guide, we were given license to kind of probe a little deeper if we thought that something else was happening. And that was super valuable to me. I distinctly remember I was interviewing someone outside of Chicago and we had just met with the police department the day prior and we'd heard about this program that they were trying to implement to have a community officer who was like building relationships with the community. And we were interviewing a family who had like kind of like I got the sense that they were not the biggest fan of this program and some of my other coworkers who had not had experience interviewing might have just stuck to the script but I kind of took a leap I was like tell me more we we just heard about this program tell me more about this program and you know we found out that there had been some just like pretty blatant cases of racism racism from the police department that our um, respondents were experiencing. And so developing those skills of looking for not one, not two, but at least three sides to a story was so, so helpful during that time. And then also just moving forward as an adult, I think there, there's absolutely never just one side to a story ever. And nothing is black and white and nothing can teach you better about that than journalism can. You're always looking for multiple angles. You're always looking for different sides to a story and just taking those skills last year and then moving forward into this year and beyond are, it's very valuable to have that, I think. And I think that process of finding those different sides of the story, it also teaches you a lot about empathy as well and being able to see things from other people's perspectives and, and, and kind of empathize with what they're dealing with. Have you noticed that at all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am a big fan of Brene Brown and one of her big things is she tries to live her life with the assumption that everyone is trying their best. And it sounds very simple, but 
putting it into action is so, so, so difficult. And my time at the barometer was the first time when I was kind of forced in a way to not take things at face value. You know, I would hear an opinion about a person and then I would go interview that person and me showing up with the assumption of them trying to do their best was so helpful. And it allowed me to see that most people are very, very good people. They're often just put in circumstances that don't allow them to be their best selves. And having that space to investigate what's really going on here with this person or, you know, with this organization or club or something that was happening on campus um, translated into me showing up to the classroom, being so frustrated by a fifth grader or someone's parent that was not being given the space to show up as their best selves and understanding that they're trying to do their best. But here's a whole host of reasons, especially this past year, that are preventing them from doing that. That first started at LMN and has been translated into every part of my life moving forward. That is amazing. And Lauren, you continue to do such awesome work. I'm really proud of you. Uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Best of luck coming up for you. And uh, let's catch up again soon. Thank you so much, Stephen. I had fun. And thank you for listening to the OMN Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.